Adam Winkler is a professor of constitutional law at UCLA. I first encountered him through his fascinating book, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. So I was intrigued to discover um, that he had published a second book on We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. I've preached a previous sermon inspired by Winkler's first book, so I'll limit myself to just one point um, from it for now. In the 2008 case District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court ruled for the first time in U.S. history that the Second Amendment to our Constitution protects an individual's right to possess a firearm for self-defense. Keep in mind that it's a different question whether something is a good idea, should be legal, and whether it is actually protected by the Constitution or whether neither of those things are okay, but that's separate sermon. Previous cases, in contrast, were closer to what's called the militia theory of the Second Amendment. In this line of thinking, if you want to exercise your Second Amendment rights, you should enlist in the National Guard, which is the contemporary equivalent of our founders' well-regulated militia. Now, whether you agree or disagree with that logic, the more important point is that the District of Columbia versus Heller was a 5-4 split decision in which the justices were divided along ideological lines. And I'm very interested in the ways that those ideologically um, split decisions expose the ways that interpretation is as much or more about wielding power as it is about careful, judicious discernment about what words and sentences so-called really mean. Along these lines, the late William Brennan, a uh, long-serving associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, used to ask his new law clerks each year, what is the most important rule of constitutional law? And after watching them fumble for answers, scrolling through all the things they memorized in law school, he would hold up one hand with five fingers outstretched. He would say, five Five is the most important rule of constitutional law because you need five votes to have a majority. Five votes means that side's interpretation is the law of the land, even if it won by a mere one vote against the strong dissent of four equally smart justices. Interpretation is not only about meaning, it is about power. In 2010, two years after that Second Amendment ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court case Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission was also a 5-4 ideologically split decision. And in the view of myself and many other court watchers, this decision was neither desirable nor the correct outcome, but it is, for now, the law of the land. And as with gunfight on the Second Amendment, Winkler is a helpful guide to reflect on how did we reach this point. When I think about cases like Citizens United, I sometimes feel like I'm in a dark movie theater and a movie uh, to see a dystopian film, and the screen lights up and it begins with a scroll. In 2010, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the First Amendment protects the right for corporations to spend money to influence elections, dot, dot, dot. And then the dystopia begins. And that was the beginning of how we, the people, became the barbarians at the gates of our corporate overlords. So I invite you to spend a few minutes with me this morning reflecting on this landmark decision.
To figure out how we got to this point, let's take a brief tour back to the early days of our nation. The famous preamble of our Constitution begins with the ringing words, We, the people of the United States. But just who is the we in We, the people? Indeed, one common guideline in small group covenants or interpersonal um, conflict mediations is to use I statements, to beware of you statements or we statements. You're generally on much safer ground speaking for yourself rather than you or we. Back in 1789, our nation's founders used that phrase, we the people, to identify who was responsible for enacting this charter of liberty and self-government. But the truth is that more than half our nation's population were prohibited from participating in the process by which the Constitution was adopted. Most were denied many of the rights that Constitution purported to guarantee. We need to be honest that in the 18th century, neither enslaved African Americans nor women who were denied the right to vote were fully included in we, the people. The twist, of course, is that we, the people, also came to serve as a rallying cry for ever-widening the circle of who is included. And many of us have studied the struggle for civil rights, for women's suffrage, labor rights, LGBT, AIQ rights, disability rights, and more. And what Winkler's book helped call my attention to further this past year is that there's a parallel history of rights for corporations. It turns out that the Constitution of the U.S. went into effect in 1789, but it took nearly 70 years before the Supreme Court heard its first case explicitly addressing the constitutional rights of African Americans. That was in Dred Scott versus Sanford in 1857, and the court held in that case that African Americans had, quote, no rights which the white man was bound to respect. The first women's rights case, Bradwell versus Illinois, on whether women had the right to practice law, was not heard until 1873. The Supreme Court ruled against women. Conversely, the first corporate rights case in the Supreme Court came decades earlier in 1809. The corporation won. Corporations have been early and active advocates for their rights. And on the one hand, the successes of corporations in securing their constitutional rights, that could be viewed as a surprising turn of events. If you search the text of the Constitution, you will not find one mention of the word corporation. Corporations were also not a major topic at the Constitutional Convention. When the founders met in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, the only discussion of corporations was a proposal by James Madison to give Congress the power to charter them, which was ultimately defeated. Corporations and their place in the constitutional structure were not debated in the state conventions that ratified the Constitution, nor mentioned in the famed Federalist Papers. As best we can tell, the people who wrote and ratified the Constitution simply never considered whether the Constitution applied to corporations. On the other hand, powerful corporate influence has been with us since before the beginning of this country. Those settlers at Plymouth, they were funded by the Virginia Company. The Massachusetts Bay Company, another powerful early influence on the colonies. Our Independence Day, it was sparked by a rebellion against an unfair tax favoring the East India Company. 
that whole T, right? Who pays for it? Who gets the money? But despite the lack of the word corporation being in the Constitution, corporate right advocates have been stunningly successful in winning Supreme Court cases in their favor. Today, corporations have nearly all the same rights as individuals. They have freedom of speech, freedom of the press, religious liberty, due process, equal protection, freedom from unreasonable search and seizures, the right to counsel, the right against double jeopardy, and the right to trial by jury, among others. Corporations don't, at least not yet, have every right guaranteed by the Constitution. They can't vote, at least not yet. They don't have the right um, against self-incrimination, at least not yet. And none to date have gone to court asserting their right to bear arms. We'll see what happens. After Citizens United, corporations also have a First Amendment right to spend their money to influence elections. And for a confluence of reasons, this landmark um, case in the corporate rights movement has caused more outrage than many that have gone before it. In the wake of Citizens United, the slogan that has most captured the public's imagination is, Corporations are not people. Now, from a legal perspective, it's actually more complicated than that. But I do think that that protest slogan begins to get to the heart of the matter that our priorities are deeply out of place in this country. And regardless of how we legally define corporations, actual human beings are more important. One touchstone that has become increasingly important for me to build the world we dream about is what's sometimes called the triple bottom line. People, planet, profit. Profit's still in there, but so too are people and planet. Um, Corporate profits will always be a major factor, but instead of holding profits for stockholders as the only bottom line, financial gain must be balanced with people, with labor rights, and with planet, what is sustainable environmentally. You might even say we need a Green New Deal. But I'll set that aside for now to explore more fully in a future sermon. For now, as I've learned more about the history of the corporate rights movement, I've come to see that it's a lot messier, actually, than I expected. One of the biggest surprises concerns Frederick's own Roger Taney, the fifth chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's literally buried on the same block where I live in downtown Frederick. He's like right across the street from Pistaro's, if any of you know where that restaurant is. Many of you likely followed the saga of removing his bust, the bust of Tani, from in front of Frederick City Hall, which finally happened in March just of this past year. In the lead-up to the Civil War, Tani is remembered for writing that majority opinion in 1857 in that case of Dred Scott versus Sanford that ruled against the constitutional rights and the citizenship of people whose ancestors had been enslaved. This ruling is almost universally regarded as the single most reprehensible decision ever made by the U.S. Supreme Court. But Tani, so Tani was very much on the wrong side of history in Dred Scott, but I was interested to learn that he was also one of the most forceful advocates for limiting the constitutional rights of corporations. And let me add two more quick twists of irony to this story. First, it was actually the famously liberal New Deal and Warren courts of the mid-20th century that first extended personal liberty rights to corporations. 
And second, even though it's infuriating that corporate rights were often secured decades before those same rights were secured for other groups within We the People, it turns out it was often those early corporate rights cases that set the precedents that were crucial for various identity groups to secure their constitutional rights. So as with many things, as you dive into the details, the line begins to blur and the truth gets messier and more nuanced. And if you'll permit me to indulge in a bit of legal nerdery, which even more than I have been already, uh, it's also during the mid-19th century Tawny Court that that whole corporations are not people protest gets flipped on its head legally. It is true that the Taney Court was the first Supreme Court to affirm corporate personhood, but they did so actually to limit the rights of corporations. They defined corporate personhood um, to see corporations as an independent legal entity with rights and responsibilities distinct from the people, the human beings who had formed the corporations. In contrast, what actually happened in Citizens United, in the more recent case of Hobby Lobby, corporations were treated not as separate persons, but rather as entitled to the human rights of the human beings that formed them. If you read Citizens United closely, the the text never says anything like corporations or people. Legally, the whole idea of corporate personhood leads back to Taney and treating corporations as an independent legal entity with rights and responsibilities separate from human beings in order to limit corporate rights. The logic of Citizens United relies on a separate stream of legal precedents interested in piercing the corporate veil and is focused on the rights of the human beings behind the corporations. If trying to untie all these legal tangles makes you understandably feel a little topsy-turvy, then don't go to law school. And let me give you one more example. The more recent 2014 Supreme Court decision, um, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, also did not claim that corporations are people. Instead, the Supreme Court again chose to pierce the corporate veil and look to the personal liberties of David Green, the human being who owns the corporation, Hobby Lobby. From the perspective of the incorrect majority opinion, Hobby Lobby was the Greens, and the Greens were Hobby Lobby. Thus, it was unconstitutional from the view of the majority to impinge on the religious liberty of the Greens in order to force them to provide contraceptive health insurance coverage for their female employees. So ironically, this whole protest of corporations are not people can actually be viewed as wrongheaded from a legal perspective. Rather, corporate personhood, not piercing the corporate veil, has more regularly been the way to limit corporate rights in the history of American jurisprudence. That being said, corporations are not people, and those protesters who say it, they are on to something. So many people, including myself, respond so positively, so viscerally to those placards saying corporations are not people, because we so deeply sense that our national, that our global priorities really are deeply out of whack. Corporate profit has for too long been given primacy over paying workers a living wage and at the cost of destroying our environment. At the heart of the claim that corporations are not people is the truth that people are more important than corporations and human rights are more important than corporate rights. But here's the thing. It's not enough to be on the side of the human and the humane. Citizens United was a 5-4 decision 
Hobby Lobby was a 5-4 decision. Remember Justice Brennan's question, what is the most important rule of constitutional law? It's five. You need five for a majority on a nine-member court. And although one truth of U.S. history is that that it has been on the side of expanding rights for corporations, that is not the only story, and it doesn't have to be the ultimate story. In the words of the late American pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty, we can learn to tell a better story. We can learn to tell our story as an increasingly inclusive understanding of we the people. To experience ourselves as proud and loyal citizens of a country that slowly and painfully threw off the foreign yoke, freed its slaves, enfranchised its women, restrained its robber barons, and licensed its trade unions, liberalized its religious practices, broadened its moral tolerance, and built colleges in which increasing percentages of its citizenry could enroll. A country that numbered Jefferson, Thoreau, Susan B. Anthony, Eugene Debs, Rosa Parks, and James Baldwin among its citizens. We the people can and must demand a better and more inclusive story for ourselves, our children, for this earth, and for future generations. Together we can build a world with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. Tell you just one more thing about this whole idea of interpretation being as much about power as it is about meaning. Dr. Dale Martin is a professor of biblical interpretation at Yale Divinity School. Some of you that know the name Bart Ehrman many, wrote many books. He, they're best friends. Side note: When I was in seminary, Dale came and spoke, and this is a place that's pretty liberal, but also traditional in some ways. So it was meaningful when he took a Bible at the beginning and he said, what does the Bible say? And then he tossed the Bible across the room and wham, it slammed on the floor. And then he said, in the stunned silence, he's like, I don't hear the Bible saying anything. It didn't say ouch. Uh, And why is that? Because we have to read it, right? We have to read the Bible. And so in someone in particular, so he was raised in Church of Christ, quite conservative, and had grown up with this one idea of what the Bible says about homosexuality, and you can substitute whatever you need to be in place of that. And he'd come to learn something very differently. So how did quite smart, well-meaning people come to some radically different conclusions, just like these 5-4 decisions on the Supreme Court? Uh, so the lecture he was giving was called Homo Hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. If you, if you know the Greek god Hermes, messenger god, right? So Hermes, hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. So he wanted to talk about that. And the two things that I'll leave you with that, he, that I've been thinking about for a long time since he said them. One, he said, I invite you to consider that texts don't mean people mean with texts. And he means that two ways. People create meaning with texts, and people are mean to each other. They are cruel to each other with texts. And for him, that's a choice. You know, so he would say, we need to practice safe texts, right? Uh, <laughs> And he would say to do that, oh, it's, it's clever. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, he said to do that, he said this, and, and this is really, really stuck with me. He said, you are responsible. He said, don't blame your bigotry and your hate and your divisiveness on the text or the community you're a part of. He said, you are responsible. Texts don't mean people mean with text. You are responsible for the truth, 
for the goodness, for the morality, and the social effect of the interpretations that you make of texts and for the uh, interpretations that the community you're a part of make. You know, and, and, are there, and are you learning to interpret texts and to form society in ways that are life-giving, that bring people together, that build bridges, that create more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness in the world and forgiveness and mercy? Or are you interpreting and being part of communities that are interpreting texts in a way that lead to hatred and divisiveness and suicide? I mean, I'll just be really clear, and things like that. It's up to us, right? We're responsible. Don't blame the text. Don't blame the community. You're responsible. So as you go from this place and into the week to come, continue your journey with love. Choose to do that. Choose to make justice, to make peace. And that as you go out into the world, any hope and love and peace and joy that have touched you in this time and place, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.